everybody, I'm Katie. And I'm Rhiannon. And welcome to Haunting Cases. Okay, apparently the awkward silence is how we're going to start it. <laughs> hello, and, hello and welcome to Haunting Cases, a paranormal and true crime podcast. I'm Rhiannon. I'm Katie! <laughs> <laughs> and we're excited to take you on this journey with us. On this adventure into cases that haunt our dreams. <laughs> I don't don't know if that's the right way to put it. (laughs) Anyway, um, I'm Katie. I am a graduate from, well, not graduate. Well, yeah, graduate. Is that right? I graduated. Yeah. I'm not from graduate school, though. I didn't go to graduate school yet. Um, I'm a graduate in criminal justice and forensic science from the ASU West campus. And... My main focus the last couple of years of my college undergraduate degree was missing persons. And I've always loved talking true crime with people. So it's it's a good time. I'm Rhiannon. I graduated from Arizona State University a couple of years back with a bachelor's in environmental science. I really enjoy uh, watching and reading all about the paranormal. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, grew up uh, following a lot of those topics and stories and continue to enjoy that today. So that's um, one of the many things that I do in my free time. But I also enjoy playing with my dogs and hiking, getting out in the great outdoors, making some art. So there's lots of things I enjoy, but paranormal things are just one of them. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, I'm over here. I'm like, free time. What is that? When I have free time, I do dishes. time is almost non-existent so these are the things that i would like to do in my free time that i don't have these are things that i i would like to do theoretically if i had the free time to do exactly. it exactly <laughs> all oh right well we are gonna uh i'm gonna focus on the paranormal in our episodes and katie's gonna focus on our true crime cases Um, going into this, we do not declare our cases to each other ahead of time, so we're going to get honest, real-time reactions from each other. Uh, we don't know what the other person's topic is coming in, so hopefully this will be really exciting for everybody involved. (laughs) (laughs) I feel so nervous. Like, absolutely just shell-rocked. I'm like, oh my god, I hope I do well. (laughs) I hope she likes it. I'm sure I will. <laughs> oh um, just a quick disclaimer, at least for my side of things with the paranormal, I'm going to provide info on these cases and we'll both be sure to give access to our sources as well in our podcast notes. But ultimately, I'm going to leave it up to you, the listener, to decide what you believe 
and we're welcoming all here who love the paranormal, whether it is out of belief or just out of love for hearing a good, scary story. And of course, we're here for all the, the true crime lovers as well, so we hope that you will join us for both. <laughs> <laughs> and on my side of things, as a disclaimer, some of these stories can be very gruesome and very, very violent. So just as a viewer discretion as is advised, like, be respectful, absolutely. Like, there's very little wiggle room to even joke with true crime. So, just as a reminder, these are actual people. These are these are people that went through some of the most terrifying experiences that I could state would happen to a person. And all these stories are meant to be kind of as the cautionary tale for people that believe that this couldn't happen to them because honestly it, it can happen to anyone and just know that these are stories of real people and they do have families please don't reach out to their families don't dox their families yeah you know the rules of the murder squad if you're listening to this one <laughs> i presume that you've listened to jensen and holes like just be absolutely respectful to the victims and their families. They they have gone through enough. This isn't meant to pour lemon juice in cuts or anything like that. It is simply for education and furthering like awareness to these types of crimes. Okie dokie. Am, <laughs> <laughs> Am I going? <laughs> I got really serious. Sorry, I brought the news down. <laughs> That's a very important message for our listeners, and I think it's really important we state that we are really, we really are taking this seriously and trying to be respectful um, when we discuss these cases, especially since, like Katie said, a lot these were real people, and there's people living today still living with consequences of these things that have happened. So while we are, we hope that this podcast is going to, of course, be very enjoyable to listen to, and we're going to have a lot of fun putting it together, we never want it to feel like we're not taking this seriously because it's a very serious topic especially in regards to the true crime and missing persons and uh we're not taking this lightly at all mm -hmm. <clears throat> I, I feel like there's a little bit more wiggle room in the paranormal for jokes and those types of things yeah i agree <laughs> yeah <laughs> most of the stuff that happens true crime related if you joke with it it's it's very dark humor which we're yeah. not gonna go down that rabbit hole if we can avoid it yep so, yeah. All right. So, my story is one that takes place in kind of like Bertha, Colorado area, because our original story is going to be that of like hometown scenarios. So, I think we're both doing one from Colorado. Yeah. Okay. Mm hmm. So I grew up in Loveland, Colorado, and if you guys don't know, Loveland like sits between Longmont, Colorado and Fort Collins, Colorado. I, <laughs> just a little background information, I went to school at Loveland High, I graduated in 2014, and a lot of like the rural part of Colorado is around Loveland-ish area, so there's a lot of horseback riding, there's a lot of rodeos that take place. And this is a case that definitely struck home for a lot of people that I knew. Um, there were people that knew her that I knew. I didn't have the pleasure of meeting her, but she, 
from what I heard, she was an absolutely wonderful person. So without further ado, this is the murder of Ashley Doolittle. So Ashley Doolittle was born and raised in Colorado. Prior to moving to Bertha, Doolittle grew up in Lafayette, where she attended Louisville Middle School and Centaurus High School through her sophomore year. Doolittle was an aspiring and accomplished young woman whose life was always revolving around horses. She had learned to ride at the age of five years old and belonged to the 4-H, which from what I gathered online with searching like what that stood for, it meant like head, heart, hands, and health. Uh, the Thompson Valley FFA, which is the Future Farmers of America. And she was a part of the Boulder County Fair and Rodeo Royalty Program. Doolittle also participated in the Boulder County Horse Judging, Horse Bowl, and Hippology teams. She was a member of several national champion horse judging teams, including the 2014 Quarter Horse Congress National Team, Arabian Nationals team, for three consecutive years, and the National 4-H Western Roundup champion team where she was a 2014 champion high individual overall through through the FFA in 2016 she was named the high individual overall champion um overall Ashley Doolittle was an individual who couldn't have been more eager driven or excited about her future at Colorado State University where she planned to begin her major in agriculture business in fall of 2016 However, there was one growing concern in her life. Since her junior year, Doolittle had been dating Tanner Florence. I, I'm not entirely sure how to say his name. I think it's Flores. I keep saying Florence, and I can't correct myself for some reason. Um, like any relationship, it began happy and beautiful, but over time, it morphed into trouble as Flores became more possessive of Doolittle. Flores would often look through her phone, accusing her of cheating, track daily activities, object to her having male friends, and sternly forbid her from attending parties when she would begin college. Unlike Doolittle, college was the last thing on Flores' mind. As a high school dropout, he had intentions of working in his father's trucking business. In June of 2016, Doolittle had just turned 18 years old three weeks earlier and graduated from Berthet High School. Additionally, after one year of dating floors, Doolittle finally ended their relationship, post several previous failed attempts. This is where things begin to get a little intense, and I'm going to give a day-by-day -day description of what occurred in the week following this breakup. So on Saturday, June 4th, Doolittle and Flores go on a hike together near Estes Park to discuss their relationship. And by the time they return from the hike, Flores states that he thought things were good between the two of them. However, on Sunday, June 5th, Flores and Doolittle arrive separately at the Sundance Steakhouse and Saloon in Fort Collins, Colorado. Doolittle appeared to avoid and not want to talk to Flores. One witness testified that Flores grabbed Doolittle at one point, spinning her around in an attempt to have a conversation. Doolittle left the Sundance that night without speaking to Flores. 
On Monday, June 6th, Doolittle communicated to Flores that she had ended the relationship and the two met up at Lawn Hagler to discuss why. Similar to the hike on June 4th, by the end of this conversation, Flores was under the impression that they had reconciled and were still together. The two then went together to move hay at his like grandfather's house, I believe. And the following day, on Tuesday, June 7th, Doolittle planned to go out with friends to the Sundance again, but tells Flores that she did not want him to come. Flores contacts Doolittle later that night and claims that he has locked his keys in the truck and needs her to come get him, which she ignores. That sounds like a red flag to me. That's a that's a red flag to me, too. So the following day on Wednesday, June 8th, Doolittle agrees to help Flores take a load of scrap metal to sell. Later that afternoon, Flores goes through Doolittle's phone, finding text messages between her and two other males, which Flores feels are flirtatious and indicates to him that she has essentially been cheating on him in the previous days. Flores contacts both of the men, to which causes Doolittle, understandably, to become angry. Doolittle calls Flores and ends the relationship again. Then Flores goes to Doolittle's home to retrieve his belongings and jewelry he has purchased for her. Larimer County Sheriff's Office investigator Aaron Horowitz, and I'm hoping I'm saying that right, is a specialist specialist in digital forensics, and he went through a lot of the text messages that occurred around this time for the two. I'm going to read a little bit of some of them, like the ones that I could find. Um, these are exchanges between Florence and Doolittle, to which I presume occurred after Doolittle ended the relationship again, and he went to go grab his things from her house. So, one was from Flores accusing her of cheating on him, and he hoped that she realized what she'd thrown away. He regretted how much money he spent on her, saying that I'm going to do something stupid now. Bye. Doolittle denied his accusation, responding with, I never cheated on you. I never did anything with anyone while we were together. Our relationship has been over for a long time. I wanted to be friends, but that isn't possible. This exchange continued through the night, with Florence eventually begging Doolittle to meet with him at one point, and continued to state that, can we please meet tonight, Ashley? I won't survive tonight. To which she responded, yes, you will. Which, in in retrospect, I'm like, yes, queen. (laughs) Yes, queen. (laughs) Unfortunately, though, Doolittle agreed to meet Flores the following day at Long Hagler Reservoir, just southwest of Loveland, Colorado. On the morning of Thursday, June 9th, Flores and Doolittle communicated about meeting. Flores is persistent in his texts, confirming and reconfirming when she is to meet him at 9 a.m. 
Doolittle has to cancel this plan originally to attend a rodeo royalty event, and the two agreed to meet later in the day. Floors, while Doolittle's doing her rodeo event, takes his father's pistol and testified that he went shooting near Carter Lake that morning instead. The exact time he was shooting is never confirmed. The prosecution argued in his case that only one shot was fired to ensure that the gun was working popular, uh, properly. While the defense argued he shot approximately seven rounds, emptying the firearm once, reloading, and shooting one more time to explain why there are only four rounds fired, why there were four rounds fired when the gun was found. That Thursday afternoon, the gun remained in the back seat of Flora's truck, despite him going back to his home shortly after. Meanwhile, prior to meeting Doolittle, uh, she runs errands to a tire shop and a bank in the city while Flores continues to communicate with her about when they're going to meet. Shortly after, when they do meet up at the parking area by Long Hagler Reservoir, the two of them reportedly discuss the breakup while Flores drives Doolittle to Carter Lake. On the way back, um, Flores asks what he can do to get back with her as Doolittle is trying to get out of the truck. Flores drives off to prevent her from doing so and testified that Doolittle gave him a disgusted look and turned away from him inside the truck. The two were on County Road 21 between County Road 8 and 8E when Flores said that he, he reached behind the seat, grabbed the gun, and shot Doolittle in the head. When Doolittle didn't immediately die, he shot her two more times. Flores then used Doolittle's phone to send a message to his own saying that she wasn't going to meet him that day. That evening, both Flores and Doolittle's parents reported them missing and the investigation began. After the shooting, Flores covered Doolittle's body with a blanket still in the front seat of the truck and drives to his deceased great-grandfather's property, 40 miles from Grand Junction. Along the way, Flores threw both phones out the window of the truck and Flores arrived at the property around 10 p.m. Breaking the glass out of the back window to gain entry, they've then eventually bringing Doolittle's body inside of the house, too. He then attempted to clean the blood off of her face and body, washed her blood-soaked clothes, and put them back on her. Flores then testified that he spent the rest of the evening watching cartoons on the TV and slept in a chair. On the early morning of Friday, June 10th, Susan White, Flores... Uh, Flora's grandmother contacts Samantha White, who is of no relation, to see if Flora's white truck is at his deceased great-grandfather's property. As from what I gathered, Samantha and her family lived right next door to the property. Samantha confirms that she sees the truck and the authorities are notified. Michael uh, Blank, a Colorado Parks and Wildlife District Manager, is asked to begin surveillance on the property Flores is at. Blank and Samantha view Flores as Flores throws two blood-soaked rags out into the field near the house and 
a takes a rolled up mat later identified as the mat that floors laid Doolittle's body on inside the home to a wood pile behind the house. They then witnessed him move Doolittle from the house, heaving her blanket-wrapped body into the back seat of his truck. In the late morning, police and SWAT arrived at the property to make contact with Flores inside the house over their PA system. Flores exits the house compliantly and is taken into custody. Later in the afternoon, Flores is questioned by investigator Danny Norris and Larimer County Sheriff's Office investigator Drew Weber. Flores initially claims Doolittle was shot on accident, to which he later recants and admits to shooting her. Flores' trial took place in autumn of 2017, and it took just seven days, to which he was found guilty of first-degree murder, felony murder, and second-degree kidnapping. He was sentenced to life in prison plus 32 years with no possibility of parole. Ashley's mom, Anne Marie Doolittle, spoke after the conviction just feet from Flores, telling the courtroom of her daughter's lifelong love for horses and how the family would never have joy of walking her down the aisle or seeing Ashley's children. Anne stated that our hearts go out to the Flores family. A part of me feels sorry for Tanner, but that does not mean he should not be punished for his actions. We want him to carry out the rest of his life in prison. In March of 2017, Anne founded the Ashley Doolittle Foundation in honor of Ashley's memory. Her goal is to help others avoid the devastating loss that their family has endured. The foundation is dedicated to raising awareness and prevention of teen dating violence by educating young people and parents in creating the conversation about an issue that is not always recognized. Anne believes if anyone is in Ashley's life had understood the signs of an unhealthy and increasingly abusive relationship, steps could have been taken to save her life. Anne further stated that if you knew Ashley, you would remember her big smile. Ashley was happy, funny, kind, humble, hardworking, and full of life. She saw the good in everyone and was always there to offer a helping hand. She was so excited when she received her acceptance to the agriculture business program at Colorado State University in fall of 2016. She had her whole life ahead of her, and then in an instant, it was all taken away. To which she couldn't have been more correct, as following her death, an entire Colorado community was in shock and grieving. At the time of her death, Doolittle was designated the Boulder County Fair and Rodeo Lady in Waiting. And in 2017, Ashley was crowned the 2017 Boulder Queen. Additionally, prior to Doolittle's passing, she'd proposed a princess program for younger girls to complement the existing royalty program, which was implemented in 2017 as well, naming two girls in the Ashley Doolittle Princess Program to become Ashley's princesses. They each wear chaps bearing the designation and a pin with Ashley's photo on it. It's through this honor that Ashley's memory lives on. My arm's asleep. I've been leaning on it. <laughs> but following the story, I think it's really important to name some statistics, which I found on the Fence Post article, which I'll link in the show notes. And is coincidentally where I got 
got most of my information for this. So, one in three U.S. teens ages 14 to 20 have been victims of dating violence. Young women in this age group are three times greater uh, for risk than any other demographic. Annually, 1.5 million high school students nationwide experience physical abuse from a dating partner. Violent behavior often begins between 6th and 12th graders. Women ages 16 to 24 experience the highest per capita rate of intimate partner violence. Each year, an estimated 1,200 deaths are due to relationship violence. That's more than three a day. 82% of parents believe that teen dating violence is not an issue, but 58% were unable to correctly identify all of its warning signs. Three in four parents have never talked to their children about domestic violence. It takes a victim an average of seven attempts to leave an abusive relationship before the separation becomes final. Leaving an abusive partner may be the most dangerous time in a relationship. Women are 70 times more likely to be killed in the weeks after leaving an abusive partner than at any time during the relationship. Lastly, there's an amazing amount of information and resources on the Ashley Doolittle Doolittle Foundation website for domestic violence victims and victims alike. So I'll link that one in the show notes too. Please go take a look. It's very much worth it. Wow, yeah, that's definitely a heavy one, as I'm sure most of the your cases will be, but yeah. I, my heart goes out to Ashley's family. I'm so sorry for their loss. That is a terrifying story, and those statistics are really disheartening of how common this problem is and i mean i (laughs) it's becoming an epidemic on itself like when i was looking at information for this case Mm -hmm. there was so much just that popped up that was related to what the ashley foundation is doing yeah because her mom bless her heart and bless her soul And I mean that, like, in the kindest way possible. I know Bless Your Heart doesn't always come off as that. Um, Like, she is... She is a huge community supporter for domestic violence victims. Like, in... I want to say it was 2019. There was a CBS article that had mentioned there was another, unfortunately, domestic teen violence murder in Colorado which I might cover later, I'm not sure. Um, And the Ashley Doolittle Foundation was immediately there and taking care of things. And even during like the Gabby Petito incident this last year, like her mom was out fighting that fight and getting information out to people about teen dating violence, which is absolutely amazing. Yeah, that is such important work. I... I think I my, that's that's just so important and it's it's a cause that I've supported for years now after personally witnessing some things when I was young and then even in college hearing stories from people I met in college about what they experienced. I mean there's been yeah, a whole lot of uh, personal experiences and hearing from other people about their personal experiences 
directly related to this teen dating violence issue. And that makes it, this case, especially not just the fact of the community this case took place in, and I can't imagine how it feels to you, like how close to home this hits, but it, it feels like it even hits close to home for me, just the issue at heart of mm-hmm. how this could have been prevented and how this beautiful, intelligent young woman could have gone on to do such great things yeah. if only there had been more awareness of this issue and and um, she knew what to look for and perhaps her family knew what to look for. So I'm so happy that through all this darkness that something has come out of it, that her family is doing what they can now to make sure this doesn't happen again. Although I wish that never had to, to work out that way. Me as well. And it, it definitely does hit pretty close to home and being similar situation as you of experiencing these things and hearing stories from other people just like I would love to say that like I know the warning signs I know when to get out but honestly it's one of those things that once those roots are buried in you in that relationship it becomes so hard to weed them out and definitely it, it is exhausting when you do but it is so worth it when you do get out of it so to oh, anyone yeah. out there facing those issues please like, you'll you'll thank yourself later. I can promise you that. And like Katie said, there are a lot of resources out there for people experiencing dating violence and relationship abuse. Please seek them out. They are there to support you. There are people out there who will help you. And there's also resources like... I'm sorry, I'm trying to remember what it's called. Um, there, there's specific browsers. I can't remember off the top of my head right now, of course, but there's specific browsers you can use that will not track your your history oh, um, like that are really... Apps. Yeah, that are and there's apps like Signal, for example, where you can send messages and it won't be tracked. So if you are in a dangerous situation, there are resources as well like that. If you're, because it is very scary and it is very fearful mm. in a lot of these situations. And like you said, one of the most dangerous parts of the relationship may be that final breaking up and getting out of it. That can be one of the most dangerous periods. Uh, so do know if you are in a bad situation, there is a lot of resources out there. Uh, lots of people willing to step up and try to help you. Um, but like Katie said, at the end of the day, you will be so grateful once it's all over and it will be so much better and you will make it through this, I promise. You just have to to get there and keep pushing through and you are stronger than you realize and there's so many people out there who are ready to support you and welcome you into this community and we're so sorry that this has happened, but there is a light at the end of the tunnel. So definitely check out those resources that we will we'll be sure to, like Kay said, link that one in the notes and then of course there's definitely many others out there and uh, available as well yeah i'll actually be linking the um resource page for ashley doodle foundation she's got a lot of building awareness programs uh the start the talk program and where to get help from like the national resource center on domestic violence and love is respect so yeah that's wonderful thank you for sharing those resources Alrighty, you're next (laughs) Great. <laughs> All right. It's your turn. I hit record. All right. <laughs> Let's move along here. So now going into our paranormal topic that we're going to start off with. 
Um, this one was actually really surprising to me. This is a location that I had not heard of before, and I'm now really excited to visit next time I'm in Colorado. But uh, researching this, this really also hit close to home, but in a good way. So I grew up in Westminster between Denver and Boulder. And while I do know there's some haunted houses in Westminster, unfortunately, I couldn't find a lot of info about those since that tends to be a lot of personal cases and, and of course, personal privacy, you know, not going to be giving out your address to all these random members of the public on the internet. (laughs) Exactly. Just SBU special special tax unit. (laughs) So instead of choosing like a residence, I went for something in Denver. So still close to home, but not that close, but still trying to get as close as I can. And uh, I'm sure growing up in Colorado that you have been to the Elitch's Amusement Park. More times than I would like to state. (laughs) (laughs) Which, Which is really upsetting because like, if you know me, I get horribly motion sick. So it's like, yeah. I'll go on like three rides and then I'll decide that the teacups are a good idea. And oh, then I'll no. just end up like writing the vomit comment after oh, the teacups no. for a good hour. <laughs> <laughs> well, this act- this whole story actually is uh, the how the Elitch Amusement Park came about which I find very exciting. So let's dig into it here. So Mary Elizabeth Hawk was born in Philadelphia in 1856. She then moved to Alviso, California in 1863 with her family, and they were fruit farmers. She was known to be a petite brunette woman and uh, met her her future beau, John Elitch Jr., in church. And this actually made me laugh. Apparently she was proposed to through notes sent through her 10-year-old brother, if you can imagine oh. that. <laughs> I thought you were going like, to say notes through the mail. I'm like, why would that make you laugh? That's adorable. And it's like that you're like, 10-year-old brother. I can only imagine like my little like neighbor kid that I thought of as my brother like running up to me with love letters. I'd be like, where are you getting these? Are you right. making them? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that definitely caught my attention. I was like, ooh, this is an interesting way to court a woman. But in any case, in 1872, they eloped to San Jose. Mary was 16 and John was 22. They knew the marriage would not be approved of by her father, so they just took the matter into their own hands, as one does. (laughs) Um, John later... Man ended up managing a restaurant in a theater, which is a very important part of the story, in San Francisco, and it was there that they found their love of theater, which is something that I know we can also relate to, <laughs> since both of us were big theater people growing I miss, up. I miss theater so much. Oh, I do too. <laughs> <laughs> but before I go into that rabbit hole, because I could talk for hours about theater, <laughs> in 1882, Mary ends up moving to Denver to join her husband there, running a restaurant called the Elitch Palace Dining Room. A few years later, in 1887, they purchased a 16-acre farm west of what is now downtown Denver uh, with the hopes to grow fresh fruits and vegetables for the restaurant. However, their plans end up changing, and they open instead on May 1st, 1890, they closed down the restaurant and instead opened Elitch's Zoological Gardens and the Grand Pavilion Theater, 
which could house up to 600 people. This was widely successful. During their first year, they made $35,000, which if you translate that to how much money that would be today, that would be about $775,000 in their first year business. Hot dog, my God. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'd like to make that kind of money as an entrepreneur. Right? I would too. <laughs> so very successful. However, um, less than a year later after opening this business, disaster struck and she became widowed when John Elich died of a severe case of pneumonia while traveling with a theater troupe in California. So at this point, things could have really gone awry for her. I mean, she's now 35. She's widowed. It's the Victorian age. And in that time and place, being a single woman was not uh, generally a very good thing. Uh, unfortunately, um, she did not have enough money or supports to support herself at the time. So she did in 1891 sell the gardens and theater to nine Denver businessmen for $250,000, so luckily she did get some money out of it, um, but unfortunately she did have to give it up. However, the panic of 1893, just a couple years later, caused a decline in attendance, and the business ended up shutting down, and she repurchased it on April 14th, 1894, for $150,000. Now, this is key here because her family had been begging her to come home said that a single woman should not be off running a zoo and gardens and theater, like a multi-part business here, by herself, but she went ahead and did it anyways, bless her heart. Uh, <laughs> she was named the Lady of the Gardens, and she, in addition to running um, already this zoo, gardens, and theater, she also opened a huge greenhouse, which was wildly successful, and based the Elich Long Flower Store off of that greenhouse, which became an amazing business for her. Uh, just a quick fun fact, another thing that made me laugh reading about her running this by herself. Apparently she hitched an ostrich to her cart and drove it around the zoo. <laughs> My girl! <laughs> I know! I'm like, I dig this lady. She is awesome. She's great. <laughs> What was she this, also, in 18, like, 80? Yeah, this is, like, oh in the God. 1890s she's doing this. Give this woman a crown. She's a queen. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> she also bottle-fed baby bears and lions, and there's a story of when a bear escaped a cage and all the workers started screaming and running away that she picked up a broom and swished her skirts around and chased it back into the cage. That is the most Meredith thing I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> oh my God. She is a spitfire, let me tell you. <laughs> I love her already. Oh yes, she has stolen my heart already. Uh, in any case, uh, this place was a safe haven for children. She was known as a lover of both animals and children, so a lot of mothers would actually send their children to this park for the day while they were off doing motherly things. And then in 1900... She did end up marrying again. She married her business manager, Thomas Long. However, a few years later, they did separate, and he died in 1920 in a car accident. Oh, no. So some more tragedy, unfortunately, followed her. Uh, again, unfortunately, in the early 20th century, uh, she did end up having to file for bankruptcy. 
there was at that point inexpensive motion pictures had arisen so less people were interested in going to theaters for entertainment as well as zoos and gardens they were getting their entertainment elsewhere as well as this is another thing that yeah, might connect with you lakeside amusement park which i used to go to growing up <laughs> i remember lakeside <laughs> oh yeah that was that was a fun place that opened in 1908 and was competing directly with the eliches amusement park and then there was also a bout of poor weather um, over that time period, so um, all these factors together led to decreased attendance, and she ended up uh, needing to sell it. In 1916, she did officially sell it, and this time it worked out much better for her. She was able to make an agreement that she was able to get a $50 a month allowance, as well as a box reserved for her and her friends at the theater, and she was also able to keep her residence on the grounds for the rest of her life. And the final part of the agreement was that she wanted the business to retain its name Eliches for the rest of its time. So this really did work out well for her. <laughs> and I'm really happy it did because it sounds like she, she put her heart and soul into this place. So she ended up living there until a few years before her death. Uh, she died at 80 years old on July 16th, 1936, and, I mean, she, I feel like it will go down in history, uh, there's a, car if I remember correctly, it's a carnation, but a flower named after her from her greenhouse, and I mean, the, as I'll continue speaking, you'll see that her, what she started has grown into so much more, but they also named an award, the Mary Elich Award, after her to encourage female playwrights, which mm -hmm. I think is very important for theater nowadays. But moving along to some of the history of the, the building after Mary passed away, it was shortly, or actually probably around the time of her death, uh, I didn't get an exact year, but it was in the 1930s, it was recognized by Time Magazine for its great success during the Great Depression as a summer stock theater, which I had never heard of summer stock theater before. Apparently that is a theater that would only open for the summer season, so they would rehearse in the off season and then have their big shows in the summer. And this one, the Elitch Theater in particular, apparently was known very well as a summer stock theater. And most of these theaters, I guess, were over in the East Coast, like over by Broadway. So it was very unique for one to be this far west, located in Colorado, and actually brought a lot of attention to, and put Colorado on the map, basically put Denver on the map, and bringing in a lot of famous people who played there and and just providing a source of entertainment that was affordable during the great depression which is one of the reasons it was so successful is people could afford to go see a summer stock theater show when they couldn't afford a lot of other forms of entertainment that's super uh, interesting yeah i wouldn't expect that i was thinking like afford theater in the great depression i didn't think people were doing that but apparently they were <laughs> i guess so Another quick fun fact, in 1928, so right before the Great Depression, their original carousel was sold to Kit Carson County in eastern Colorado, and it is still in operation today. And this is actually a carousel I visited as a kid and had no idea its connections to Elitch's, so that was pretty interesting. The 1936 Ferris wheel that they erected during the Great Depression is also the same Ferris wheel in Elitch's amusement park today. So still got some connections back to the old history. I now, going on that. <laughs> oh yeah, I do too. I, I remember like freaking at one point. Like I think it was <laughs> yeah. like in high school, and it did like a long, like when we were getting up to the top, and I looked at my brother, and I'm like, I am never riding this again. <laughs> Coincidentally, 
I never went to Elitch's again after that because I moved. Oh no! Well, I guess you fulfilled your promise. I did fulfill my promise. I kept my word. Well, now you know why it was creaking because it's from 1936. It's a very old Ferris wheel. I guess so. Hopefully, not a haunted Ferris wheel. With that sound, it sounded like it was haunted. It was like the haunted house door like creaking open. Oh my goodness. Well, you might have good reason to be afraid of amusement park rides. There was some more tragedy at the park, and this was before I should mention the current location of Elitch's Park. So this is uh, taking place at the original location where the theater is. In 1944, in July, there was a fire in the Old Mill Boat Ride that ended up killing six people at the amusement park from smoke inhalation. And the worst part about this, I feel, is that the coroner's report said that the deaths could have been presented prevented because the facility was very old not taken care of and it was stated in the report it was due to carelessness and ignorance that these people died so there was definitely more tragedy in this location even after mary passed away as far as the park itself um in april 30th of 1986 the gertler family which at the time was the family that owned it announced the park was moving but the theater would not be moving with it which broke a lot of hearts since this theater was well-loved since it opened. The park did move to the place where current Elitch's Amusement Park is located, and they opened there in 1995. However, like I said, the theater did not go along with it, and unfortunately they did not have enough funds to keep the theater open, so the theater closed. No. <clears throat> Moving on to current day now. Or near current day, I should say. <laughs> the, so over uh, all these years between, uh, well, I guess not that many years, between 1995 and early 2000, so just a few years, uh, the, the building was just left in disrepair. It was not maintained at all. Uh, the biggest uh, thing that overcame it really was just straight elements. There was animals getting into it, uh, foxes making dens inside, bats roosting in the building. And then, of course, this building had been standing for near a hundred years, and so, and this building was not built to last a hundred years. Like there was no intention it would last that long. It had no foundation, no insulation, no weatherproofing. So I mean, all the boards in this building had just completely rotted, and it was. Well, many people say it was a miracle this thing was still standing in 2002 when the historic Elitch Gardens Theater Foundation was founded and they decided they want to restore it. The restoration was estimated to be $14.2 million, and... Yeah, that was my reaction, too. Holy shit! <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of money to save this place. Oh, my God. Uh, I mean, because basically the entire thing was wrecked. Every inch of this place had to be rebuilt. And not only that, I mean... You're not only rebuilding this historic building, you're also trying to make it, like, up to modern standards. You're adding all this extra stuff. So, very expensive. <laughs> very expensive. I'm like, my wallet was sitting on my desk. It's gone now. It just disappears. <laughs> yes. Oh. oh, my goodness. So... The formal groundbreaking ceremony took place in 2006. So... Restoration has taken place since then, and uh, now the, the theater is ready to be open. Unfortunately, COVID happened, so 
last I checked, they aren't actually open now, thanks to the pandemic. Uh, but the building has been restored to the point now where they can open to the public as soon as it is safe to do so. And I will, a uh, quick note, I will put a note in, or a link in the notes for the theater if you are interested in supporting their programming once they do officially start opening programming if you're over in the Denver area um, or if you're interested in donating to their restoration efforts as it, the number actually went up due to a storm in the, I believe it was the late 2000 or uh, late 2000 teens, I guess I should say, that wrecked the place after they had already restored a bunch of it. So, I mean, they still need funds to finish the restoration efforts. So, please feel free to check them out. In any case, um, before restoration, the fire marshal had declared it to be what's called a five-minute building, meaning as soon as one part of it catches fire, the whole thing's going to be burning in five minutes. So, I mean, this place needed a lot of work. And uh, moving into our paranormal section here of how this all relates to the paranormal, I would like to quote Tom Noel, professor of history at the University of Colorado, and this is from the Ghosts of Elitch Theater documentary in 2008. <clears throat> Something miraculously has kept that theater up. I mean, there's 1001 reasons why that theater should no longer be there, so I think you have to give Mary Elitch's ghost the credit for keeping it up. Sarah Queen is just holding that thing together. She's like, it's Ooh, not yeah. going to fall today or any day. <laughs> no, Satan, not today. Not today. <laughs> so, and I, he is not the only person to voice this. Um, one of the paranormal investigators I will discuss in just a moment also voiced this, that he believes that it's possible Mary Elitch's ghost is what kept this place standing for as long as it was because... Like I said, the wood had completely rotten through, and it was still standing. It's, and from the outside, it also looked perfectly fine. That was the crazy thing, is if you look at photographs before it was restored, I mean, besides looking like an old building, I mean, it's it still was there. There wasn't a bunch of that many holes. I mean, you can still see a, a relatively nice building for its age and how it was built. So, I mean, it is shocking how well it lasted the years. But in any case, uh, so they decide they want to go in and restore this building, and even before they shut down in the late 1900s, there was reports of a ghostly woman in Victorian dress, often wearing a big hat. There's also reports of her wearing a feather boa. And stagehands, producers, ushers, uh, all sorts of people had reported this ghost, and it was believed to be the ghost of Mary Elitch. <clears throat> There's even a historic record of Shelley Winters, a famous actor, actress of the time period who had been rehearsing in the building late at night and I'm going to paraphrase here because there's a, a few different sources of exactly what she said so it doesn't it seems like word of mouth here there's not an exact quote for her but she asked who is the broad or some would say bitch with the feathered boa up in the balcony oh my god yeah she had something to say I guess do not disrespect our queen that way I know, right? I was like, dang, disrespecting Mary. Uh, and actually, <laughs> there was a story of, um, I believe it was the same actress, uh, for weeks it was bizarre, like, this super talented, well-known actress suddenly, like, it didn't sound like stage fright per se, but basically she was having issues, like, rehearsing, she wasn't herself, they were, they were wondering, like, how are we gonna go on, our lead actress is just acting bizarre, and so part of me wonders if it was connected to that comment she may have made about Mary, 
Maybe Mary didn't like that. <laughs> She's like, I'll show you. Exactly. Bring in my ostrich. We ride at dawn. <laughs> right. Oh my goodness. So yeah, don't piss off Mary. But in any case, uh, more recent accounts have also been voiced. Again, um, many staff members have seen supposedly her ghost standing in her private box. There's also uh, a case of a director would regularly bring his dog into the theater. And he said every time that dog entered the theater, it beelined straight for her private box. And he couldn't explain why. Like, it was bizarre. There's no reason the dog would want to go over there, he could imagine. But it still went straight for her box every time. There's also an occurrence that happened directly below her box, and uh, keep in mind when this happened, the woman said she didn't actually know she was located below Mary's box. This was a surprise to her later. Uh, it was Betty Lynn Hull. She, she was the park archivist and historian at the time, transporting some photos that were on the famous photo wall in the theater while they were restoring it. And she describes it as that she walked into... What could be described as a, a solid wall where she could not move any farther. And I mean, there's nothing there, but it's warm and it's soft. And she said it felt almost as if someone just wrapped her in a hug. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until later she realized this occurred under Mary's private box. And so she said from that point on, she, she did believe that Mary was there. In that same area, there's also been, uh, and when I say recent, I mean in the 2000s. Uh, there's been recent reports of uh, someone will be walking in that area and hear their name called over their shoulder, or they'll hear somebody walking behind them. But one interesting thing about these reports is often when you think of ghosts, people get freaked out. I mean, they're scared, they're paranoid, they don't like this going on, it freaks them out. But none of these people are freaked out about this. They all say this theater has a very positive energy to it, and none of this scares them. Like, they are not bothered, <laughs> at least the reports I could find online. No, nobody seemed bothered by the fact that their name was being called, or there was unexplained footsteps. I mean, everybody was completely okay with it. So that was another thing that kind of stuck out to me that's interesting about this case compared to a lot of paranormal cases I've heard of. Now, yeah. in terms of an actual paranormal investigation of the location. There is a more recent uh, investigation that I found an article declaring there had been investigations by Front Range Paranormal Investigations between 2013 and 2015. They visited twice a year, the article said. However, I could not find any information on these actual visits beyond that they were happening. <laughs> so unfortunately, the only uh, paranormal investigation information I have to go off of was an older visit conducted by the Rocky Mountain Paranormal Society on July 28, 2006. <clears throat> now, I gathered most of this information about how the investigation went between the documentary I previously stated, uh, Rocky Mountain Paranormal Society's actual website, and then uh, a podcast episode featuring Brian Bonner, one of the researchers. Who, and so he also spoke to how this went as well. Now, Brian Bonner specifically stated that they tend to be very skeptical and they try to be scientific. So they don't go in expecting to find something. They go in usually expecting to be able to explain it away with something that's not paranormal. Whether that's... Uh, Things with the house, you know, heating, electricity, things that make weird noises in your house that are not paranormal, or animals, or, or weather, you know, all sorts of different things that can make people feel like maybe something's going on, but really there's a, an explainable cause for it. 
He also mentioned sometimes they just have to accept I don't know as an answer, which he said can be very difficult in science, which I can agree with that. I'm sure you can too. I can. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Especially when you you have your hypothesis and you want to find out if it's wrong or right to just say, I don't know if it's wrong or right can be a frustrating experience, but he did say they have to do that sometimes. (laughs) I, I think like the worst part of like actually learning, like it's okay to say you don't know was when I was in forensic, like, professional practices in forensic forensic science, and we were doing, like, court testimony mocks. And my instructor was just drilling me on the same question over and over and over again, because she wasn't liking the answer she was getting. And I'm like, at one point, I went, you know, I'm not too sure anymore. Let me do some research and get back to you. And she finally stopped. I'm like, was I giving you the wrong answer? And she's like, no. That's just how attorneys work. I'm like, are you serious? (laughs) Oh my goodness. Yes, in science, I don't know is normally a very uncomfortable response that we don't like to give. So (laughs) that's interesting. If we're not sure, forensics crosses that boundary. (laughs) Yeah. If we're not sure about something like in science, science, we go back to the lab and try to make sure that we're sure before we go. I have no idea what went wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. We double check and triple check and then quadruple check to say, I I don't know what variable messed up my experiment. Something wrong. (laughs) Though I can say, well, I know we're getting a little sidetracked here, but working, uh, having experience with environmental science and working in the field, there's a lot of variables there that you cannot control, like you can control in a lab. So I feel like that's another area of science where you often have to just say, I don't know. Like there, there are a couple areas where you should not say those words, like in chemistry yes. of being like, hmm, that turned the wrong color and it's smoking. I don't know what happened, but what you put in it. Yes, don't be saying that in the oh chemistry lab. That will not go over well. So in any case. Uh, as I said, Rocky Mountain Paranormal Society did go in and investigate this location. Now, keep in mind, when they did this investigation, this was back in the early 2000s. This was right, like, right at the beginning of the restoration efforts. So pretty much uh, not much of anything had taken place in this building. So one of the big issues they had, or I should say big challenges they faced in this investigation was a lot of the rooms were not safe to enter. You know, the floors would, like, literally collapse beneath them if they walked into that room or, and, and in addition to um, safety hazards, there's also the, just all these variables that cannot account for, because as I said before, there was no insulation or like temperature control system in this building. Uh, so, I mean, it was very drafty, you know, you're getting air coming in from the outside, causing temperature fluctuations. You're also um, able to hear things coming from outside very easily since the building's not very insulated. And so that also was a challenge they faced that when they would come across something that maybe they couldn't explain, there was still that element of it could be something from outside and we just don't know. So that was one unfortunate thing about the time period this investigation took place in is there's just some things that could not be um, explain as to whether they were paranormal or not, and uh, like I said, I don't know is sometimes the answer you give. But in any case, they did conduct the investigation overnight, and one interesting thing that did stand out was that Mary's private box was colder the entire night, like three degrees colder, and while the building as a whole experienced some temperature fluctuations throughout the night, as you would 
expect um, any building that's not insulated to do. It would shift in temperature as the night gets colder. The building will get colder. Um, no matter what, Mary's box was always three degrees colder than the rest of the building. And they compared this to other boxes to see if maybe it was the construction of the box that they just weren't as well insulated as the rest of the theater and they could not explain why Mary's box would be three degrees colder. Additionally, Mary's box also had high EMF levels, that is electromagnetic field levels that cannot be explained. And now if you're not familiar with electromagnetic fields, those are fields that are originate from, it can originate from live sources. So us people and animals, we have EMF fields around us um, for just from the way our bodies work, but you can also get those surrounding electronics. So if you have wiring in a wall, that could give off an EMF field. And so generally that's what they look for is they look to see, is there wiring in the wall? Is there any sort of electronic devices nearby that could be creating this electromagnetic field? Or maybe do we have a den full of foxes living in the wall and that's why we're picking up a higher EMF level right here. Uh, they did investigate that in this this one spot. They could not find a reason why there would be EMF, high EMF levels here. So that was another thing that stuck out is particularly interesting about Mary's private box. Now a couple other things that happened just in the theater as a whole across the night. They had a smoke alarm and then a fire alarm go off during their stay, and they couldn't explain why those went off. But again, this is a really old building, so maybe it was an ele electrical failure or something just glitched out. That may have not been paranormal, but they couldn't say what caused it. They also heard a woman singing, or actually, excuse me, a little girl singing at about 3 a.m., and they couldn't determine the source. So it is very possible, they said, that there's some random little girl at three in the morning out in downtown Denver singing. <laughs> um, it also could have been um, they were hearing a ghost and they don't know again. And so that was, again, one of the challenges of this investigation is with the poor soundproofing of the building. It was difficult to say if the sound was coming from within the building or if it was coming from the outside of the building. Additionally, they could not use motion sensors because there's just way too many animals around. There was mainly uh, foxes and bats were the problem. And then they also did not, They, I mean, they put up cameras, but they said they couldn't really look for like orbs because there's just way too much dust in this building with how old it was. That, like there was no, no looking for orbs, just way too much dust blocking the camera. Um, but that being said, they did find uh, that, that temperature and EMF levels being different in Mary's box. And then there was like, a few other locations in the theater where during the course of the night, there was a spike in EMF levels that could not be explained by an animal or electronics being moved. And then they went away, which is also something else that can, would normally be associated with paranormal activity. Now, um, some extra information I was able to get specifically from the Historic Elitch Theater podcast. Be sure to go check them out. I will link them in our notes. Uh, Brian, Brian Bonner from the investigators came on and discussed this in 2020, discussed their original 2006 investigation, and uh, did so with uh, one of the staff members who also works in the theater and has personally experienced things in the theater. And one of the things that the staff member brought up was that people general have seen things moving in the corner of their eyes, wondered if it was some sort of, uh, I believe it was described as like a white cloud or mist, which also is something that some people associate with paranormal activity. 
And this was something that actually was really interesting to me. Brian Bonner explained that there is a scientific reason you may sometimes see movement in the corner of your eye or may see um, some sort of unexplained cloud from the corner of your eye. He said there is, that the fluid in your eye will actually resonate if you experience a vibration of a 19 hertz frequency, which is a very low level vibration. And it will make your the fluid in your eye vibrate. <laughs> and Ooh. he said, this actually makes you see things in the corner of your eye because you're picking up, like, literally on the, the fluid in your eye moving. <laughs> and so he said that can be really creepy, obviously, because you you turn and look and there's nothing there, but you swear you see something moving in the corner of your eye. And the other thing is, he said, that this vibrating fluid will also cause feelings of dread or being watched. So I found that particularly interesting since that's an explanation I haven't heard before for some of these uh, common experiences you'll see in these paranormal places. Uh, another uh, interesting thing that came up in the podcast, a more recent paranormal experience, it sounds like this was happening after they have done some renovations. Uh, Tracy Fricky, one of the staff members at the theater, said that her, along with some other woman at the theater, were experiencing what they called the clicker ghost. And the clicker ghost. <laughs> they, I know, weird name, right? I was like, the clicker ghost. Predators <laughs> in the it. theater. He's just sitting there waiting <laughs> for people to come by. Exactly. So they believe it to be a male ghost because he's only interacting with females. And what, what they hear is just out of nowhere, something will go, Oh, God. You know, I like the predator noise better. I feel like that would be a more comforting noise than, like, somebody just... In my ear. I know. Yeah, I was like, that would make me uncomfortable, too. Absolutely not. My Uber's here. I gotta go. (laughs) So it sounds like, from what I've read, that's the only uncomfortable paranormal experience people have been experiencing is specifically women getting clicked at. But beyond that, all the experiences people have found in this theater have been positive, besides the clicker. Oh, God. <laughs> yes, watch out for the clicker. <laughs> um, and as always, uh, the one other thing I want to mention from the podcast, Brian, I, I really liked this when Brian Bonner said this. He stated it's important that people are able to hold on to their lived experiences and that that's not taken away from you. And so even with them coming in and doing this paranormal investigation, and you can say that they didn't find a lot, unfortunately, and or a lot of it well, like, could not um, definitively be said it was paranormal just due to the circumstances, um, that he said that doesn't take away from these people who have had experiences in this theater, that those experiences are still valid to you, and you, you still have those stories and those memories, and that just because their investigation didn't necessarily find maybe as much as was hoped for that doesn't take that away yeah so what do you think about the clicker and the ghost of mary elich i I would love to meet mary elich either like in this life or the next one oh yes i would too like i'd like to be her friend the clicker however i think if i ever ran into him i'd be like no when in doubt stage it out no Like, I'm sorry, like, the most uncomfortable noise ever. Just, like, walking through, minding your own business, getting hugs from Mary, enjoying her presence, and then all of a sudden you have... In your freaking ear? No. No, 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 sir. 
And only the woman, that's what got me, is the male staffer was like, yeah, none of the male staff have been experiencing this. Like, only the female staff. And I was just like, ooh, no. Absolutely not. No. No. (laughs) Yeah, so with that being said, I do want to go visit the theater uh, next time I'm in Colorado if it's open. I'm really excited to check it out now that I know all this about it, but I am very much hoping that I do not get a visit from the clicker one. I I hope so, too. I'm like, with with moving back to Arizona, I'm like, oh, God, I'm not going to have seasons again. I'm like, you know, I can just load up my car... And I'll just go visit people I know in Colorado. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yes, come visit the seasons in Colorado. I I will get away from the desert. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, All right. I don't know what else to say. Oh my god, we've reached the end. (laughs) We've reached the end. Um. So if you guys are listening and you enjoyed the podcast, please make sure to tune in for the next episode. I'm not really sure what we're doing yet. But if you want to follow us on our socials, right now the only ones I have hooked up right now are Facebook and Patreon. And we are Haunting Cases uh, podcast on Facebook. And I think it's the same one over on Patreon too, but I can I can link those in the show notes below. Uh, yeah. Whoo. <laughs> it's over. <laughs> it's done. <laughs> oh my goodness! And we're at like seventy minutes, which isn't bad. We we went, we went over the hour mark a little bit, but that's okay. It gives people something yep. to listen to when they're on like a long drive. I enjoyed that. Yeah. Do you want to plug our email as well? Oh yes. Anybody yes. wants to email us? If you guys want to share your haunting experiences or true crime ones, potato potato. If you want to do listener <laughs> tales and stuff, please make sure to email us at hauntingcasespodcast at gmail.com. That'll be linked in the show notes below, too. <laughs> and please be sure to subscribe and rate us on Spotify. Yep. We are so excited to start this podcast with you, and we hope you will keep listening and keep following us. So please spread the word. Uh, reach out to us let us know what you liked what you didn't like tell us your awesome paranormal and true crime or maybe not awesome paranormal (laughs) and true crime stories not always awesome (laughs) send us recommendations Um, for stories (laughs) yes tell us what you want to hear we're always open to suggestions but no matter what definitely reach out we'd love to hear from you and please keep listening because we are so excited to have you here (laughs) You keep saying keep listening, and my brain immediately goes to Morbid. I'm like, and keep it weird. <laughs> I'm like, that cannot be our outro phrase, unfortunately. Uh, nope, that one's already taken. That one's Sorry. already taken. We'll figure it out as we go. We'll get a good one. <laughs> anyway, you guys, thank y'all for listening. We will see you in the next episode. Uh, bye! <laughs> I guess I'll just do the same one for my, my video game outro. <laughs> Ha, 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 ha.